We've been going through the life of Christ. As we walk through this year, we are focusing in on the events that took place in Jesus' life, in His lifetime. But I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that the Bible is one connected story of God's amazing plan for us that culminates in Jesus' life, in His death, and in His resurrection. This morning, we are going to see that connection in two simple yet profound questions that Jesus asked. The first question is, who do men say that I am? And the second question, who do you say that I am? He writes a little slow, doesn't he? But he's got such nice handwriting. I could never write that well. But before we do that, I want to tell you a story. And it all starts with Nehemiah. Now, for those who don't know his story, Nehemiah's story, Nehemiah was a Jew. And at the time, the Jews, the nation of Israel, were in captivity under Artaxerxes. He was the king of Persia. Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. That means he got to drink everything that the king drank first to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. Not exactly a job with longevity if they didn't like the king. And one day he showed up for work looking rather sad and out of sorts. Well, what's wrong with that, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. It was a bad idea to come to work looking sad and disheveled when you worked for the king. Because if the king didn't like the way you looked, he could just simply replace you. And by replace you, I mean have you put to death. But rather than kill him, the king asked Nehemiah what's wrong and how he could help. Say what? He is asking a, a servant, a slave, how he can help him. Nehemiah not only asked the king if he could take months off of the job to go rebuild the entire city of Jerusalem. Apparently, he was a little low on PTO. In fact, he didn't have any PTO in his bank. He asked the king to pay for the whole trip and all the cost to rebuild the city. Uh, I, need to, I need to take a year off. And by the way, could you just spot me a few billion dollars to rebuild the city? And the king agreed. And when he was in Jerusalem, he took a few men and he walked around the city to see the state that it was in, the state of destruction and of rubble. And while he's doing this, he records for us, and I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise and rebuild. Then they set their hands to this good work. Okay, I'll bite. What does that have to do with us as we're sitting here today? Well, in 2003, we began to look for a permanent home for ministry for Faith Fellowship Church. It was our dream. We had been meeting in various schools in Baltimore County, including Perry Hall Middle School right across the street. And each Sunday morning, we would get up at 5 in the morning. We would drive to where our two trailers were stored. We would pull them out hook them up to the cars, drive them down here, get to the school, get into the school, clean up where we were going to set up, unpack everything, rugs, carpet, music equipment, screens, everything that you see we had to carry with us, unload it, set it up, have church, then stay late, take it all back down, pack it all back in the trailers, clean up again, drive it back to where we were storing it every week for almost three years. And God's good hand was upon us during those years. And then in 2004, this building that we're in today became available, but the price was astronomical. But you know what? We know how to pray, don't we? 
And we know how to trust God for big things. Amen? And in 2004, on June 25th of 2004, we bought this building for $5,450,000. But God doesn't disappoint. And through, his, through this body of believers and through other things that God was doing, we only had to finance $2,678,154. Big number with Santander Bank. Now let me tell you, finding a bank to loan a church millions of dollars is no small task. But when you only have been in business for three years with no real assets, like, what are you going to guarantee this with? Well, we got two trailers. You're welcome to take both of those. It's collateral for $2 million. It was nothing other than God's good hand. Fast forward to 2017. Our back Santander told us that they were getting out of the church loan business and would be calling in the loan balance, which had now dropped to $1,588,388.95. And we went back to God. And on July 28th of 2017, we found another bank, Friendly Towards Churches, Capital One Bank, with whom we financed $1.2 million for 10 years. Wait a minute, I thought you said the balance was higher than that. When God is your Father, amazing things can happen. And the funds rolled in. $1.2 million for 10 years, amateurized over 20, is all that we had to finance. Today, as I stand before you, I am happy to report that as of 8-1, August 1, last Tuesday, six years and one month into that loan, we are by God's very good hand, mortgage-free. Amen. Amen to that. Brent, who led worship for this morning, wrote a musical called Go Ahead and Dream about our beginning way back when. We performed it at our 20th anniversary. One of my favorite songs goes like this, if I can sing it for you. 65,000 square feet of brick and mortar and concrete, 9,660,000 square inches of your potentiality, 65,000 square feet. And if we work as a team, we'll begin to see the dimensions of this dream. Try it with me. 65,000 square feet of brick and mortar and concrete. 9,660,000 square inches of pure potentiality. 65,000 square feet. And if we work as a team, we'll begin to see the dimensions of this dream. And it goes on and on from there. It was a great Great musical. It'll go down with the works of Rodgers and Hammerstein and Gershwin, I am sure. In fact, there's a sequel. I think he started. Maybe we can convince him to, to finish the sequel. And for our 25th, do them both. And with God's good hand, we hope to expand the dimensions of this dream to reach even more for Christ. But God wasn't done. You see, when God blesses, He blesses beyond measure. Additionally, just a month ago, we landed a new tenant, Kidsville, an indoor playground for all ages that will open in seven months where the Y used to be. They signed a 10-year lease with two options for five years each. 20 years. I hope to be home in glory by the time that runs out. But God blesses beyond compare. We serve a good God. Amen? Amen indeed. We have a cake afterwards. Stick around. We'll celebrate some more. 
We want to remind you, if you missed a message, any message of the year, you'll want to catch up, listen online, share it with a friend. You can do so by going to FFC Sermon or sermons.org. You can also go to www.ffcph.org, click on the live tab, and watch previous messages on YouTube or Facebook. Let's pray and we'll see what God has for us this morning. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that your hand has been good upon us. Even when we look through the times that we thought were tough, Father, you are always good. Your hand is always good. You are there walking beside us, as you tell David, through even the valley of the shadow of death. You comfort us. We thank you for your presence, that you are our Father, that you own the cattle on a thousand hills, and that we are joint heirs with Christ. We thank you for your good grace upon us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, we are looking at two questions this morning. Two questions that Jesus himself asked. Who do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Let's read our text from Matthew chapter 16 this morning. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Messiah, Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, Hades will not overcome it. Why is it important that Jesus asked these questions? Why is one of my favorite questions, along with who, what, when, where, and how? It's, it's how I study the Scriptures. I just begin asking questions as I read passages. My mother tells me that this has been true from the time that I could walk and talk. She said I was always pulling on her shirt, asking some question or another, and why. In fact, she used to call me Bugger Boy. Now, don't you all get any ideas? That was her name for me, Bugger Boy. Apparently, I was also a little annoying in this process, but, but I'm not scarred, I promise. I, I got over it. So why does Jesus ask these questions? I think the answer is of monumental importance for the disciples, but also for you and me. The answer that Peter gives, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is exactly where Jesus needs the disciples to be. And Jesus has been trying to get them there for over two years. He is two-thirds of the way through his three years of ministry before they finally pass the exam, and Peter declares Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah. And with everything that comes with that term, a full recognition that he is the Messiah, that he is God, that he is the Son of God, that he is in the flesh, the one the prophets talked about and said would be coming to bring justice and peace, and mercy, and grace. Jesus had been trying to get them to this point since the beginning of his ministry when he was baptized by John the Baptist. Let's take a look at their progress through these two years. Here was their first clue, and they missed it. Back in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, Matthew tells us, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. 
At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. God declares, This is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. How do you miss that? How do you miss that? It's like when you're watching the game and you get up to run to the kitchen or the bathroom. Isn't that always the time when the biggest play seems to happen and you missed it? The disciples missed it. Now, granted, Jesus hadn't picked the disciples yet, so I can cut them a little slack. But it must have at least made the news, the Jerusalem Times, the the, uh, Galilee Gazette, the Jordan Post, CNN. It had at least been on Fox. It should have been a clue, a really big clue at his baptism. How do you miss a voice from heaven? I don't know what they did. Here was their second clue. Mark tells us Jesus had been teaching all day by the Sea of Galilee. When evening had come, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go to the other side. They got in the boat. They are halfway across the Sea of Galilee, and they run into a storm. Not an ordinary storm but a storm big enough to make hardened fishermen fear for their lives. It's only an eight-mile trip. I mean, they are bailing water to stay afloat. It's all hands on deck. It's a bad situation, and it dawns on them. In fact, they become evangelically ticked off because they look over, and the Bible says Jesus was asleep in the stern of the boat. He was catching some serious Z's. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Hmm, what good is a Savior sleeping on you when you're in a storm? What good is having Jesus in your boat if Jesus is sleeping when you need him the most? What good is having a deliverer who isn't delivering when you're in a storm? Their theology runs into conflict with their circumstances. Jesus had just been teaching on the dock. They had heard his sermons, but right now they're in trouble. They go over and the Bible says they stirred him. They had to shake him. He was deep in sleep and they shook him until he woke up. Then they uttered that potent phrase, Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? In other words, they are saying, what's happening here is not what we heard to be true about you. You are disappointing us. And what's disappointing us is not the theology that we heard in our head or in Bible study, but what's throwing us for a loop right now is that you don't seem to care. Maybe you've had that same experience. I know we can sing all the songs, but sometimes it doesn't seem to be going on in our lives. You're asleep when I need you. When my world is collapsing, you are snoring on me. This is not the time to go to sleep, Jesus, because if you love me, number one, you wouldn't have let me get into this storm in the first place because you knew it was coming. And two, even if you did, you'd at least be trying to help me to get out of it. But here you are sleeping while I'm bailing. What kind of Savior are you? Jesus being aroused, the text says, gets up and asks them a provocative question. He says, why are you so afraid? Well, duh. What kind of question is that? What do you mean, why am I so afraid? Because we're about ready to die in here? Maybe because we're seeing our lives pass in front of our eyes? What do you mean, why are you so afraid? Maybe because we're in a hurricane and you're not pitching in? We're about to perish? Oh, ye of a little faith. First, that seems pretty insensitive on Jesus' part to give them 
that phrase in this situation. It seems a little bit uncaring on Jesus' part, given their current reality. Why would Jesus say that you're afraid, you're faithless? You see, they had forgotten something. Before they ever left the dock, Jesus has said, let us go to the other side. We're not going halfway and end it. We, us, y'all, we are going to the other side. They heard him say it, but in the middle of a crisis, they forgot what he said. The word was not abiding in them. They had lost, they had lost what he said because they had now focused on their scenario. And their scenario determined their theology. You don't seem to care. When if they would simply have remembered what he said. In fact, there's a little word there in this story that really is a zinger word. It's one of the most powerful words, I think, in the story. It says that Jesus was asleep on a cushion, a pillow. When I'm flying across the country, the stewardess might come at nighttime and ask me if I want a pillow because she's assuming that I might want to go to sleep on purpose. You see, Jesus wasn't nodding. He had tucked that thing up under his neck, and he was going to get some seriously good sleep. Jesus wasn't in the boat sitting down going, oh, my eyes, I can't keep my eyes open. When we drive to go anywhere, I usually do all of the driving, we could start having just woken up in the morning. My wife will say, I'm here for you when you need me to drive. Within five minutes, she's out cold. If we happen to switch, ten minutes after she's driving, I've got to pull over my eyes. I'm so tired, I can't keep my eyes open. I'm so, this is not what Jesus was doing. Jesus intended to go to sleep. Whenever your God looks like he's gone to sleep on you, he's done it on purpose. Because what he wants to see is, what are you going to do with his word? Were you just listening, or are you going to apply it in a storm? Jesus looked out and he says, hush, peace, be still. And I love the way the story ends. They looked at Jesus and they said, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Now, if you're going to be scared of something... It's not the storm you should fear, but the one who can stop it in one word. But that was the wrong answer to the test. Who is this man? That Jesus could do these things that only God could do should have been a clue. They should have fallen down and worshipped him. They failed the test, but fortunately, God believes in retesting until we pass. Here comes clue number three. When they finally made it across the Sea of Galilee, keep in mind what they had just been through. And what they had asked, who is this man? Who did they meet? But two demon-possessed men living among the tombs. Naked. I don't think it was a pretty sight. Their day just keeps on getting better, doesn't it? I mean, wow. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. Matthew says, too, for a long time this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. It's like Jesus is saying, Okay, you missed it out there on the lake. Let me make it plain and clear. What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The demons declared him. They missed it again. And finally, their fourth clue, Jesus had just fed the 5,000, and he sends the disciples on ahead of him this time, back across the sea. From Matthew 14, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. 
And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now Jesus can see what's going on. And he walks out to meet them on the water in the middle of the sea. And when Peter sees Jesus, he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and called him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus and Peter got into the boat, and immediately the wind dies down, and everything is calm again. Why did Jesus even perform this miracle? What did he want the disciples to learn? I said earlier, Jesus believes in retesting. Here it is. It's a do-over. This miracle, being the fourth, not only being the fourth clue to exactly who Jesus is, is a do-over for the disciples. It's a retest. Their first answer was wrong. Who is this man? This time they get it right. Those who are in the boat worship Jesus, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And now we come back to the two questions that Jesus asked. Who do men say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Jesus asked a lot of questions. Why did the crowd, who did the crowd say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Matthew relates that Peter did more than just identify Jesus as the Christ. He also proclaimed Jesus' divine nature. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, was not a sign of ignorance. He knew all things. He knew what was on the disciples' mind. The question wasn't motivated by Jesus' need for self-conceit or vanity. He had no desire to fish compliments out of them or to inflate his ego. Rather, his question was aimed at provoking the disciples to consider their level of faith. The immediate results of his question make it clear why he asked them what he did. Jesus began the conversation by asking, asking, who do the crowd say that I am? In response, to the disciples relate various things that they had heard, including perhaps prophets come back to life. At least the crowd viewed Jesus as someone special. But the crowd's guesses were all wrong. So Jesus directs the questions to the disciples themselves. Who do you say that I am? In other words, are you going with the crowd are you sticking with the conventional wisdom about me? Or do you have another, more insightful answer? What do you really think? According to a recent Gallup poll, a record low 20% of Americans now say that the Bible is the literary word of God, the literal word of God, down from 24% the last time the question was asked in 2017. That's half of what it was at its high point in 1980. In 1984. Meanwhile, a new high of 29% said the Bible is just a collection of fables, of legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by man. Eight in ten Americans have consistently held the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but don't get too excited. When we examine the Gallup data in greater details, we discover that about half of this group, only half of it, holds the orthodox position that Jesus was in fact God's living son living among men. Most of the remainder believed that Jesus was divine only in the sense that he was a man 
who was uniquely called by God to reveal God's purpose in the world. Peter then speaks up in answer to the question. Peter affirms his belief that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And more than that, the Son of God. By this time, the disciples had seen many miracles. They had seen water turned into wine, the rising of the widow's son, the calming of a storm, the casting out of demons, the feeding of 5,000. The disciples knew that Jesus was more than a prophet. He was absolutely unique. He was, in fact, a God in the flesh. So Jesus asked the questions, who do you say that I am? And, there, and he receives the correct, divinely inspired response from Peter. This marks a turning point in Jesus' ministry with his disciples. Starting then, the Lord gives his disciples additional information, as shocking as it would be for them to hear. Jesus had refrained from telling his disciples about his death and resurrection until they had reached an important milestone, namely that their faith had grown to the extent that they could express their conviction that Jesus was the Son of God. How the disciples handled the different additional information of Jesus' death would depend on who they believed Jesus to really be. Knowing that he is the Son of God, they should be able to trust him, even to the point of accepting his death without being shaken, and resurrection. Jesus needs to make sure they fully understood who he was. Or they will never grasp the plans that he gives them next, the real reason he came to earth. From that time on, Jesus began to, to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed on the third day, and on the third day be raised to life. Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus had to die, and he had to rise again. Now it's time for you to answer the question, who do you say that I am? Your very life depends on your answer. Jesus said these words to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not, stand, does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Has light come into your world through Jesus Christ? Or are you still hanging out on the dark side? You only have two options, light or darkness, truth or lies. Today you will walk out of here having made that decision. Simply because you are here and have heard the question, you must decide, who do you say I am? Worship team, you can make your way back up. Before we wrap up this morning, there's one other thing about this story that caught my eye. And it prompted my favorite question, why? Context in Scripture is important. And this text is no different. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, Whom do men say that I am? Why do Matthew and Mark go out of their way to mention Caesarea Philippi? Where was Caesarea Philippi? Well, Caesarea Philippi was a mixed pagan city of Greeks, Romans, and Jews, sitting at the crossroad of a major road 40 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. 
at the foot of Mount Hermon, the largest mountain in any direction for some 500 miles. And at the base of Mount Hermon was a temple dedicated to Caesar Augustus, who had brought peace to the Roman Empire. In fact, they called him the Prince of Peace. Interesting. The back of the temple opened to a famous spring of water believed to be controlled by the god Pan. Worshippers would bring a sacrifice to the temple of Augustus and ask questions of the gods. Will the harvest be good this year? Should I make this business deal? Should I marry this person? And they would throw the sacrifice, flesh and blood, into the spring of water. And if the sacrifice sunk, the gods had answered yes. And if it didn't sink, the gods had rejected the sacrifice, and the answer was no. Why didn't Jesus ask the disciples this question when they were on the shores of Galilee, just a few verses back, earlier in, Mark, in Matthew 16? Because only at the location of Caesarea Philippi could Jesus make use of the powerful context of his environment to teach eternal principles. The statement Peter makes about Jesus is true no matter where it would have been uttered. However, what we miss because we are not standing with Peter on location is that they were near or maybe even in front of the temple dedicated to Caesar Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar. The Romans considered both of these men to be gods, and now these two men were dead. What does Peter say and why? He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son, and not the adopted Son, of the living, not the dead, God. Augustus Caesar was a dead God, who was adopted a son, <clears throat> who was the adopted son of another dead God. Peter made the most powerful contrast possible. And Jesus replied, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by Father in heaven. Remember the context of location. Jesus and his disciples are standing near or in front of the temple of Augustus where people sought the will of God by flesh and blood sacrifices. Jesus goes on and he says, And on this rock I will build my church. Many readers of the New Testament know that Peter's name in Greek and Aramaic means rock. So there's a play on words with Jesus' statement to Peter about building his church on this rock. What we miss because we are not standing on location with Jesus and his disciples at Caesarea Philippi is that the largest rock anywhere for 500 miles is Mount Hermon. During their two-day hike from Galilee to Caesarea Philippi, the most unavoidable and indomitable object that they were looking at was Mount Hermon. Jesus could have found no greater and more forceful visible object lesson to teach the truth, that his church would be built immovably upon a rock of who he was than to be standing at the foot of Mount Hermon. So our final question falls once again to you. Who do you say that I am? I'll leave you with these words from Paul's letter to the church in Rome and we'll end with a song. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Faith Fellowship, know that God is for you, not against you. Have a good day in Jesus. Remember, hang out for some cake.